All right, all right. Good morning, afternoon, evening, um, whatever time of the day you may be hitting the play button. Thanks so much for joining us for the eighth installment of this round of the Chapter Chat. We're working through the book of Acts, and this week we come to Acts chapter 8. And um, Jason, I'm pretty sure this is my favorite chapter in, in Acts, and... Um, how about, what say you? Well, I tell you, man, it, it's been a journey so far, but this chapter, it's action-packed. There's just so many things here. It's it's one of my favorite to teach as well. Well, there's uh, and there's lots of uh, characters uh, in this particular chapter, and we get some you know names to go with some of the, the the characters too, instead of these you know nebulous groups of people that. Uh, you know these some of the villains that we've been noticing thus far, and and, and I'm using those terms accommodatively, uh, not to suggest that what we're reading is is fiction at all. This is real, um, but you can't help but get swept into it from a uh, kind of from a, a dramatic standpoint. And uh, there's certainly lots of uh, drama and things of that nature here in Acts chapter eight, and so. I'm ready to get right to it. Uh, we really need to make reference to those last few verses of chapter 7 that really, um, well, it's, it's kind of hard to separate those verses from these few verses in uh, the beginning of chapter 8. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll get on my high horse and talk about where chapter division should have took place. <laughs> you know, these verses should have been a part of the previous chapter or vice versa. And... Um, not entirely sure where the break should have been here. So, uh, at the end of chapter seven, uh, we, we we talked last week about uh, Stephen and his uh, sermon that he presents and his defense, and then uh, at the end of chapter seven, uh, Stephen is uh, is is killed. He becomes the first uh, Christian martyr, and that then gives way to the the greater persecution that now opens up the beginning of. Of chapter 8. Uh, we were introduced in verse 58 of chapter 7 to a young man named Saul who it says uh, he had consented to uh, to Stephen's stoning and so now we pick back up with uh, the mention of Saul in chapter 8 verse 1 and Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Let's just go ahead and get two and three. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Um, just a couple of verses there to, to introduce Saul, but it's more than enough to paint a pretty vivid picture in our mind of, of what this guy is. It, you know, we, we throw out the word persecution and, uh, you know, use that kind of terminology to describe Saul here as, as a persecutor of the church. If we wanted to use a term that maybe would be more relevant to our times that I think people would, would be able to latch on to and say, oh, I think the term we would use would be the term terrorist. Because that really is uh, the, the image here. I mean, we're talking like you know Osama bin Laden type type stuff, uh, especially since Saul seems to be you know kind of the the ringleader, or at least one of the one of the main people at this particular time. Uh, yeah, at, at verse three, my my version uses the word ravaging. Yep. I don't know if yours says that too. Yes. 
But that sounds like a wild animal. I mean, yeah. it's it's not just he, he's calling some names or you know putting people down, but ravaging the church, just tearing it apart. Yeah, yeah, dragging and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The idea of this just wild animal bursting into people's homes and devouring them, just dragging their carcasses away. Um, yeah, um, and, and 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 I don't think Luke is is trying to soften in any way, uh, kind of the, the the picture that we ought to have of this guy, uh, really, that's going to serve as such a, a dramatic uh, turning point later on whenever Saul does become a Christian. We're going to see such a, such a contrast to what he was before and what he becomes uh, later on. Spoiler alert, uh, as always. Um, but yeah, this, this great persecution, it says there arose on that day. So I take this to mean that, again, the day that Stephen was stoned, it's as if our Pandora's box has now been opened up, and now all of these people who maybe had had you know unrest against Christianity kind of boiling up within them, well now we're just going to let loose, and 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 now just the door is wide open uh, to very openly um, start persecuting uh, Christians, and and this is so much more. It's on a much higher level than the way that we often throw around the term persecution today. You know, we talk about persecuted from the standpoint of you know people made fun of us or they you know they laughed at me because I went to church or I have these particular moral values and it's true that that that's a form of persecution uh, but let's be careful not to just go lumping that in with the kind of persecution that our brethren in the early days of of, of, of the New Testament church, that they experienced. Yeah, I think uh, of that list at the end of Hebrews 11, mm-hmm. uh, hearing about people being sawn in two. Yeah, like that's that's we don't experience that. Yeah, uh, no, we we are so far removed from that. And and you wonder how does that happen? How do you how do you get people who are willing to do that sort of thing? And it's it's just what you were saying. You see somebody else do it. You see that you know we we've already done this. Mm-hmm. And so it's like why stop here? Yeah, you know we're just going to keep going and and. Um, it, it's something that you feel safety in numbers, and you, you see since since other people have done it before, then I might as well you know add to it. Yeah, yeah. Now, Saul is is setting the he's setting the tone uh, early on here. Um, let's just note there in verse two about uh, that there was these devout men that buried Stephen, and it says that great lamentation was made over him. We really just can't. Uh, undersell uh, the, the the importance of Stephen. I mean, we really just got that one chapter, pretty much chapter seven. Yeah. Uh, but the the reaction that there was made to his death obviously says to me that that he had a much greater influence than just one chapter of the Bible. You know, would w- initially cause us to believe um, this guy was uh, you know a worker in the kingdom uh, here in the, the early days of of the Lord's church. Um, uh, verse two uh, is what I kind of want to to notice on and, and kind of use that to segue into the next little section here, where it says that the persecution caused that church in Jerusalem to to scatter, and what we see here is we see um, Jesus's what he had promised was going to happen. We're starting to see the fulfillment of that. 
that he said what would begin in Jerusalem, told those apostles back in chapter 1, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to stay there. But the indication, though, was that it's not going to remain there forever. And we're starting to see now that, that that little circle on the map is starting to expand and to grow. And uh, now we're seeing Christians being forced. They're not even having to be told to go. They're being being forced to go. Uh, and the natural response is what we're going to see you know, in verse 4 as to what they do when they go. But now we're expanding that territory, Judea and Samaria, some of these surrounding uh, territories on the map, and then of course after that it's going to just open up even you know like gangbusters even more into the, into all the world. The Great Commission is is in full force. I, I like that the the connection there between chapter one verse eight yep. and chapter eight verse one. It's <laughs> like here's the fulfillment of what was what was going on, what Jesus said was going to happen. Yep. You know you think about why this happened like it did. Um, you know wouldn't wouldn't persecuting the church and scattering the people out wouldn't that cause that fire to go out? Well, it doesn't seem like it no. because you know. Think, imagine like a grease fire, like on a stove or something. What happens when people try to throw water on that and put it out? I mean, it just psh, yeah goes everywhere, and the fire gets bigger. Right. Uh, or you you know you try to stomp out a fire somewhere, and I keep using fire, but <laughs> these people were on fire. Light the fire. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. No. That that's exactly right. And uh, it it's it's a. This is this is sad, kind of what what causes this. Mm-hmm. But there's there. This is the Lord creating something beautiful, even out of even out of you know things that uh, you know madness and, and 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 wickedness. And the Lord is able to to do that. He's able to take things that you know men intend for for evil, and He's able to turn those into to something for His good. You know, I, probably the classic example of that would be like in the story of of Joseph. You know mm. what those brothers intended for Joseph. You know they meant evil, but Joseph says, you know, God, God meant it for good, and that's what's happening here. Is God's taking something and using it to to expand the kingdom. Uh, that's going to just, again, it, it, it's going to end up causing the, the Great Commission to, to to really have its full meaning, go into all the world. Yeah, that, this passage is sort of like a backdoor approach for me to see. Uh, how important it is to trust the Lord because mm-hmm. you think of what what Satan tried. Satan tried to kill Jesus to stop God's plan. What did that do? Yeah, fulfilled it. Right. You know, Satan tried to you know stomp out the early church here. Uh, what did that do? Uh, it spread it. Yeah. And, and so anytime that that we trust it in our own logic and our own reasoning, because if you think about it, how do you stop somebody? You kill them. That's pretty good. You yeah. know, how do you stop the church? Well, kill as many as you can, spread them out. Yeah, that, that would normally do it. But when when God's in the mix, God's plan, He trumps everything. Yeah, I mean, His wisdom is just so much greater. So we we should have have enough evidence to show that we put our faith in God. Yeah, and it, 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 I'm sure Saul and some of those early persecutors they, they may have saw that there was some measure of success because the end of verse three does say that there were there were some men and women who were you know committed to prison. Uh, others you know ultimately would have been. Uh, executed along the way, uh, but let's just stop and remember. I mean, we've got, I mean, we got thousands. We don't know the exact number at this point, but we know there are already, you know, more than five thousand Christians. Uh, I would, I would imagine, considerably more yeah. by this point uh, in Jerusalem. And um, you know, it's like it's like trying to herd cats. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to get all of them. Yeah, uh, you may yeah. get you may get a few of them, and those people, um, you know, the, 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 those those ones who who died for the cause of Christ, they will receive their reward for 
for for the good that they did and for their stand. Um, but the rest, they were then able to go out and do what comes next. Actually, let's just read that, verse 4. Wait one second real quick. I'm sorry. Um, Luke is a, is a writer who shows us, uh, you know, he is not sexist. Uh, and I think that here yeah. we see the persecution is an equal opportunity persecutor, uh, not true. just men, but women too. And, and we see, Luke has mentioned several times the importance of women and, and you know, it is not just the men doing this. Uh, so the women are joining in in being persecuted as well. I think that speaks a lot to, the, to just the overall grand scheme of this and how far reaching this yeah. was. Yeah. How big of a deal. Definitely. Um, and well, and let's just, let's just say that, that same thing about verse 4. Now, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Um, all right, if, if we're going to talk about, if we're going to use the word preach in the sense of, of someone being a preacher, all right, no, I don't believe that there were women preachers. Right. Having said right. that, though, I am compelled when verse 4 talks about those who were scattered went about preaching, spreading, teaching the word. That, that that is including women as well. That they're gonna they're going to be, you know, teaching a message through through their through their words, through their conduct, and by their example, and in all the ways that that women can teach, and you know, still remain within the the the, the role that God has called them to. Uh, and, and the other thing about verse four, when it talks about those who went about preaching the word, I, I'm going to suggest that really none of these people, or at least the majority of these people, are not professional preachers. Yeah. You know, these are not apostles. In fact, you remember back up there in verse number one, it says all these were scattered except the apostles. So, the, so at least the, you know, the twelve guys that I would have considered kind of probably more able to preach, well, well, they're not even amongst the scattered group. Uh, they're staying back in in Jerusalem for the time being, uh, and so all these people that are being scattered to other places, these are just Christians. These are just regular men and women. Uh, just like you and I, regular folks don't have any kind of special training or uh, practice about you know what it is to to be evangelistic. These are just regular folks, and as a result, wherever that they found themselves, you know, there's kind of just these general mentions of the areas of Judea and Samaria. Um, but all, whatever town that they finally landed in. Uh, I'm compelled that all right, whatever new environment that they were in and the new people that were now going to be a part of their lives, they just went immediately to work to, hey, well, let me tell you about what brought me here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let yeah. me tell you about this Jesus guy. Uh, and let me tell you what I know, and I want you to know about that as well. Yeah, we we make the word evangelism something that it's not. Yeah. I think we, we try to overcomplicate that. You know, evangelism, just literally translated, it means bringing good news. Mm-hmm. And so that's all it takes. You know, what is good news? Well, Jesus has a lot of it. And, and so anything that we can share about the Lord, about Jesus, about what He's done for us, I think that that's part of it. We don't have to share everything all right. at once, but... Um, you know, there's there's some things that can be helpful uh, in what we say and, and just conversations we have. Yeah. Um, and like you said, regular people um, yeah. scattered about. That's that's what they did. And that's and, and that's what what makes this really amazing. I mean, it, yes, the apostles play an instrumental role in in causing the gospel to be spread throughout the world. But mm-hmm. it wasn't just those twelve guys doing that. Yeah. We've got all of these other just regular Christians that. That yes, the apostles were the ones that helped to teach them and to bring them to to this point. But now, they've been equipped 
And now we're just going places. And that's really just the way that it works. I think we talked about this in a previous chapter about just the, the chain of teaching. You know, uh, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others, etc., etc. And all of us are, are in that chain somewhere along the way. And, um, you know, it's, it's neat to think about that you know, if we extend the chain back far enough, uh, it may be the result of some of these people in Acts 8 verse 4 that ultimately led to us being taught, you know, to this yeah. present day. Yeah, you know, exactly. uh, it would be neat to, in heaven, just kind of find out, you know, how that chain just all worked down to where it came to where I now became a Christian. Yeah. Um, that's that's really cool. You know, verse 4, there's a lot in verse 4. That it's just, and he says it so simply. It's just like, boom, here it is. They yeah. scattered about. Yeah. Like, this, I think this helps answer the question, well, when did the people actually leave Jerusalem? Because remember, we've been talking about how they they were all staying there right. and you know learning more. Um, sometimes you need a little bit of kick to get out the door and, and go <laughs> go do what you need to do. Yeah, um, you know they they weren't the goal wasn't for them to stay in Jerusalem for forever. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and it makes me think of like, you know, and not that these people had the same motive as the people did when they were trying to build the Tower of Babel, but, yeah. you know, God's intention back then was, was go, you know, but multiply, get, get, I, don't, I don't want you all here in one spot, and in kind of an inverse kind of way, um, yeah. yeah. And for some of these people, yeah, it may be meant for them, all right, well, now we've got a reason to go back home, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. we've, been, we've been here in Jerusalem for, you know, weeks or months now, and... Uh, yeah, this 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 seems like the right time to finally uh, go back home and take what we've what we've gained and learned here, and now we're going to help others to to know these same things as well. Um, now, if you want to talk about maybe a professional preacher or someone who who it seems had some uh, some some ability and some skill and had been using that, well, that's this next guy that we're introduced here in verse five, uh, Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and we probably ought to be clear, um, this does not seem to be Philip the Apostle. This seems to be the Philip that's referred to back in chapter 6 as being one of the seven men who were appointed to, uh, to help with the, the situation that had arose there about uh, serving the tables. This seems to be that Philip. Chapter verse one here, the apostles were in Jerusalem still. Yes. They stayed there. So yes, that makes sense. So that's how we know this is this is not the apostle Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so here is now the second indication that what we read in chapter 6 about when the apostles laid their hands on those, those seven men that had been selected and appointed, that, that they transferred... Uh, some, some, if not all, of these, these miraculous gifts of the Spirit because now we see uh, the second non-apostle after Stephen um, performing miracles. Um, he's you know, casting out unclean spirits and demons and healing people who are, uh, who are, who are sick and paralyzed, etc. Um, and we're seeing once again kind of the, the function that those miracles were, were designed to play the immediate thought is, all right, well, that's to, to help people. Okay, yes, it did help people, but that really wasn't the main purpose of it. The main purpose of it uh, was to uh, confirm the message that he was preaching, uh, the things that he was teaching. And what was he proclaiming? He was proclaiming the Christ. 
I, love, I don't know how that's rendered in the New American Standard, but it just says, proclaim to them the Christ. Is that the same way? Uh, yeah, proclaiming Christ to them. Okay. So. I like the Christ because that helps to remind us that uh, Christ is not, uh, you know, like Jesus' last name. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, right. it's, it's, it's a title. He's the Messiah. Uh, he's the Lord. Um, but procra- proclaiming who that was, and we're going to see Philip do that again, here in the last half of the chapter, mm-hmm. he's just going to preach Jesus. He's preaching uh, who Christ is. Uh, I love what's said in verse 6. <laughs> you know, the, as a preacher, I guess I just especially like seeing verses like this where it says, The crowds with one accord paid attention to the things uh, that, that that he said. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a captive audience. Uh, it's the kind of uh, attention that... Uh, any proclaimer of of God's word, you know, just just thrives on, yeah. uh, and and I don't know whether that's you know maybe this is saying something about Philip's ability as a as a speaker and as an evangelist of of the word, uh, maybe so. Uh, I'd like to think though that what they were more enthralled with was just the content of the message, uh, the fact that they're. Uh, coming to understand some things that uh, that they had not pieced together. When you think about the, the city of Samaria, well, what kind of people lived in Samaria? Well, Samaritans. And well, who were the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans were kind of this may be a crude thing to say, but were considered kind of like a like a half breed. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, these were people who had um, because of their their ancestry it was a Jewish Gentile coming together of, of mother and father somewhere along the way and so they were always kind of you know looked at as, as being you know not quite fully like the rest of us Jews uh, mm-hmm. and um, and they were looked down upon I mean you know you you read about how Samaritans were were looked at in the uh, in the Gospels, there in John chapter four, there's the Samaritan woman at the well, and uh, John gives us that little note, kind of parenthetical note about how Jews have no dealings with, with Samaritans. Uh, Jesus, I think, told the story of the good Samaritan purposely because you know here's someone that you would not expect to be the hero uh, in a story as you're telling this to a Jewish audience, um, and so these are people who ha- have kind of been cast out. Uh, and, and were always kept at arm's length by uh, by those that would have been full-blooded Jews, and um, so there probably was for them there was lots of you know this craving to fully understand. When I read in John four about that Samaritan woman, it seems like that woman really wants to get it. She just is not getting the opportunity to, to fully get it. You know, she has some understanding of some some biblical things, and and kind of even repeats that to Jesus there. Uh, but she doesn't have a full understanding, and so Jesus kind of helps her along. And and I just tend to believe, at least when I think of the Samaritans, I just tend to think that a lot of them may have been like that. And and maybe that's why one of the first groups that Luke tells us about outside of Jerusalem of people who heard and were receptive and eager to receive the gospel would have been Samaritan people. Yeah, you think of uh, in John 4 there, uh, after the woman figures out that Jesus is at least some type of prophet, she starts asking questions, yeah. religious questions, wanting to know about worship and, and you know where do we worship, what do we worship, how do we worship, and and she she did seem very eager. Um, now I don't know where I got this and why there is this quote written in my Bible. Don't know who said it, but somebody did at some point. But uh, out in the margins, I have uh, next to Samaria an arrow that says pickles and peanut butter. 
Um, okay. Just yep. So Samaritans and Jews get together, uh, get along as well as pickles and peanut butter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, there you go. Okay. Well, I was looking at that and I was like, you know, so I didn't come in with any notes today, but you do have a note in your Bible about pickles and peanut butter. And that's the only thing written. Yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true, uh, and, and and that's what makes this amazing as well. We're starting to see uh, some of the barriers being broken down uh, that that the gospel was intended to do. Uh, we've got. Uh, Philip, who, um, you know, judging by what we talked about in chapter 6 with the names of all those men, of those men, he seems to have, this probably a Greek name. Uh, And so here's a guy who maybe, you know, was one of these kind of Hellenized uh, Jews. And um, and so maybe he would have been maybe a little bit more sympathetic, you know, to to Samaritan people and, and would have made him a really good candidate to be the one to go down there and first introduce them to uh, to, to the things about the Christ. Um, other thoughts there in verses 4 through 8 before we look at the next section. I think, again, it just shows the purpose of the miracles was to get attention. Yeah. And to get and that that's why it said, uh, that's one of the, the reasons why they were giving attention, because they saw the miracles, they saw the signs. And, and that, that makes you realize that this person is authentic, this person is from God, and yep. I think that we see a direct contrast between that and somebody else uh, here in the next section. Mm-hmm. Well, let's read the next section. We're introduced to this uh, interesting fellow, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. Hey, I tell you what, you got to give it to the Samaritans. They're really good at paying attention. <laughs> and, uh, they paid attention to, to Simon as well. Uh, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. Verse 11, And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Let's just stop right there um, and paint the picture of, of Simon. Um when it says that he practiced magic, uh, I know other translations probably use the word sorcery. Um, we're talking here about, um, well, let's just be clear. We're, we're, talk, we're talking about trickery. We're talking about sleight of hand. Um, I don't think we're talking about something that God was providing some kind of you know, backing for or enabling him in any kind of way. Uh, I even would hesitate... As as some have suggested that maybe he was maybe he was doing things that were seemingly miraculous in nature, but he was being empowered by you know by the devil you know, and so we're talking about you know black magic here and uh, that kind of uh, sorcery. Um, I, I'm not convinced of that. I, I I take this as this this guy's just the local huckster. Yeah. Uh, he, he's just the, and, and we have those still today even, and, and we have those today in the religious world too uh, that he's just he preys upon I mean dare I say it maybe just the simple minded the mm-hmm. naive um, the people who you know are, are looking to be either entertained or enthralled by such things uh, that's the way that I take Simon especially here, here in just a few minutes when we see, you know, what he says to Peter, yeah. uh, you know, that he sees dollar signs in his mind, th- th- that's why he just comes across to me as like, just a, he's just a charlatan. 
and uh, he's just he, he's out to make a buck. And he's learned some he's learned some tricks along the way, and he keeps others in the dark so that they don't know all of his secrets about how does he do that and all you know. Well, oh look, well, she's sawn in half. How, how did he do that? I don't know. Uh, you know that sort of thing. Um, but this guy's the, the the well, he's the type of guy that definitely he needs the gospel. Yeah, I mean, you think you remember chapter three when Peter and John were with the the man that they healed who was paralyzed, um, and everybody was looking at them. And what they said, the first thing that Peter said was, "Why are you looking at us? Like yeah. we're something great, uh, you know? It, it's it's Jesus who you should be fo- focusing on. This guy, direct opposite, uh, you know, he was performing these signs or, or magic or whatever, claiming to be someone great, mm-hmm. and he was really promoting himself." Yeah, what he's doing. Well, and it seems like from the text, if you look at the end of verse ten, you know, the people were the one who then ascribed to him, you know, well, this this must be the power of God that's that's called great. I'd like to think that Simon at least had enough, you know, decency to not necessarily, you know, attribute himself as being some some worker for God in some way. He just wanted, you know, there's magicians today that that's kind of part of their name, Jonathan the Great. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. And, and and that's that's kind of what I what I picture with Simon. I kind of even picture him as being just a very irreligious fellow. Uh, I could be wrong about that. Maybe he does have some religion prior to this moment in time. But um, the people, though, consider him something great. When in reality, he's he's a fake. Yeah, he's a phony. Uh, and that stands in stark contrast to what Philip is actually doing. What Philip is doing. Is real, uh, and and that's what impresses Simon here because he 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 knows he knows a phony, hmm. and yeah. and as a result, since he knows what the the fake and the counterfeit looks like, that probably makes him even better equipped to recognize what the real thing is. I I think we we can't overstate you know in verse eleven that it wasn't like he that Simon had came into town just like yesterday and, yeah. and just did a couple tricks. He was good at what he did yeah. because he had astonished them for a long time. Right. In order to do that, you you have to be pretty good, uh, you know, to continuously be able to impress people and, and make them think that you're doing something great. Right, right. Well, verse verse 12. So uh, here's all these people. They, they previously had been enthralled with, with Simon. Verse 12, though, but when they believe Philip... As he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so uh, this is another great moment, kind of another threshold that's been broken. You know, I remember there was that note a couple chapters ago where. Uh, Luke had recorded, and even the priests believed. Yeah, you know, some of them were, were converted, and now here we've got a guy who's you know just you know the definition of of kind of sleaze, <laughs> a sleaze ball to me, uh, yeah. and and it says you know and even he believes and is baptized and becomes a Christian, and he you know kind of it seems like he kind of attaches himself. Uh, to Philip, maybe kind of just eager to be of use in some way uh, to uh, this this cause that's uh, kind of just spreading like wildfire. Let's go back to the fire illustration. It's spreading like wildfire throughout Samaria. Um, yeah. We really can't um, say enough about 12 and 13 about the connection with, with baptism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a couple chapters since we've actually uh, seen the word baptism used, uh, from my recollection. Um, but that's what th- these early people did in response to, all right, so they've heard some things, they believe it, now we need to act on that in some way, and baptism seems to be kind of the word that Luke uses most often to just describe kind of the culmination of, of how they acted upon their faith and and became became Christians. Um, and that's just the pattern over and over throughout Acts um, yeah. is that uh, baptism is what uh, it, it's what genuine believers uh, do when they're when they're motivated by the things that they've been that they've been taught. I think we're even going to see that later on in this chapter yes. with someone else. Yes. Um, and and I, I think that we we can't overlook that. I mean, that's that's something that seems to be directly connected. Not that it's more important than anything else, but that it it was a requirement, it seemed like, because that's that's what everybody was doing yeah. With, yeah. with this. I want to say as well, just kind of preemptively, when we get down here in a few verses with, with, with what Simon says and does, there are certain religious groups and, and, and people that teach certain doctrines, like, for example, uh, certain doctrines of, of Calvinism, that will point to, to Simon as being an example of someone who he never really was a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to say that I think that that just denies what the text and what Luke is just plainly trying to tell us. You know, what's said about Simon in verse 13 about how he believed and he was baptized is not any different than what's said about the men and women in the previous verse, in verse 12, that they believed and they were baptized. To say that Simon wasn't a Christian would be to say that all those other people, they weren't Christians either. Right. Um, I believe that Simon was a Christian. I believe he actually was, was fully in with Christianity. It's just here in a few minutes... We're just going to see that some of those bad habits of his past just kind of come creeping back to the surface, and that happens. That happens all the time for Christians. Um, you know that 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 doesn't make our, our our baptism invalid. It doesn't make the you know the moment when we had the light bulb moment where we believed and we we we, we realized we needed to do something about our soul. It, it doesn't change any of that. The fact that 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 Satan uses temptation and especially. Will will pull at things from our past that he knows are, you know, are are you know it's 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 our Achilles heel, so to speak. Um, the devil's going to use that stuff, and he's going to use it with Simon here uh, in, in just a few minutes. And I, like I said, I just want to say, just kind of right up front, I believe Simon was was a Christian, and there's no doubt about that in my mind. Yeah, I, I'm on board with that. Um, you know, I think you used Achilles heel. I, I like to use uh, the term pet sin like yeah. a lot of times people have a pet sin something that they they just keep around and just keeps coming back um and i think that that's true because the, all the language here it seems to indicate he was exactly like the other people in all aspects yeah he was constantly amazed yes. at this and, yes. and he was uh you know converted fully from from all outside yeah. perspective it's just that the you know when it comes to all right yes we realize when we're baptized we are we're burying the old man. You know, we're, we're crucifying that old man. Uh, but, but the truth is, e- even though we come up out of the water, the new man or the new woman, the new self, um, th- that process of crucifying the old man, I mean, it doesn't just happen in the snap of a finger and it's just done forever. Really, the entirety of our lives is, is, is continuing to put to death 
the old man. You think about when Paul writes those letters later on and he uses that language about put to death what is, you know, what is earthly in you and put to death these various things. He's writing that stuff to people who are already Christians. Um, and the fact that he says that doesn't make them any less of a Christian. It just speaks to the reality of what happens even while we're the children of God uh, is that we're continually, daily, having to, to, to mortify, I like that word, hmm. mortify yeah. uh, the old man. And little by little, you know, hopefully over time, uh, we get a little stronger and get a little better each day. But it's a continual, lifelong process. And, and, and I appreciate the fact that Luke records Simon's folly here in just a few moments and, uh, you know, his failures here because it just reminds me of, yeah, that's... That, that's, that's pretty much what the Christian life is like. That happens. I, I can sympathize with this guy. I understand. Yeah. Is it possible to fall into sin again once we have become a Christian? And uh, I believe this text says yes. yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And and like you said, you know, we 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 have to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Um, it, it's something, and that that's illustrating death. We we do die daily, and, yeah. and we we realize that that every single day it's it's uh, something that we have to work at and work towards. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it's through the grace of God, and, and that's uh, right. You know, he he allows us to to come back to him, and that's that's great. And I, I think that we're going to see that here that there is hope, even if we do go back into sin after we become a Christian. Um, there are things we can do. To, to get in a right relationship with God once again. Right, right. Well, and, that, and we've, uh, that's, I realize that's kind of getting, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but um, let's, let's pick up in verse 14 now. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's just stop right there um, before we talk about Simon's uh, mistake here. Um, I've, uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've kind of always uh, <laughs> struggled with uh, verse 14 from the standpoint of, you know, is, is, is this Peter and John, you know, kind of acting as representatives of of the mother church because uh, I know there are folks that have traditionally they've they've kind of looked at that when they read Acts that in their mind you know the Jerusalem church kind of seems like the mother church uh, you know when we get to chapter 15 there's the 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 conference the, the Jerusalem conference and it's like okay well see look at there we're going back to Jerusalem because they're going to be the one that's going to decide the the doctrine etc etc uh, I don't believe that that's, that's the case, and I don't believe that's how the apostles viewed the Jerusalem church. I don't believe that's how, um, that, that's not how God wanted the Jerusalem church to be viewed. Um, but I have kind of struggled in, in knowing how to, to answer that. You know, here we're going to send our two delegates, Peter and John, down, and they're going to, they're going to take care of some things. Uh, but the truth is, the main reason Peter and John are coming down there is because they are apostles who have the ability to impart the gifts of the Spirit. Um, Philip, even though he has those gifts, evidently does not have the ability to impart those gifts to anyone else. Um, and that's important for, for us to understand when we talk about you know miraculous gifts of the Spirit, um, that yes, they could be passed from an apostle to someone else, 
But there's no indication anywhere in the Bible that once that someone else had those, that they could then pass that on to someone, and they pass it on to someone, they pass it on to someone, they pass it on to someone, and hey, now, even still to this day, we can keep having uh, spiritual gifts. Um, the apostles came down because they were the only ones that had the ability to pass those, those gifts of the Spirit on. And I do think that is what's being talked about there in, in verse um, 15 when it talks about uh, receiving uh, the Holy Spirit. In verse 17, receiving the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think even more clear in Acts 19, just to show that this teaching is, is something that's consistent uh, throughout the book of Acts and, and throughout the Bible. Um, when we ha have record of this group, that, that the Apostle Paul, and mm -hmm. so let's keep in mind, Paul is an apostle. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 19, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Yeah. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. You don't see these miraculous gifts in any other form unless somebody has had their been been laid on the hands of the apostles. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to jump ahead, but in verse uh, in back in Acts eight, verse eighteen, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed, mm -hmm. well, how do you see that? You know, what? How are you? How are you able to witness that? You know, isn't the Spirit something that's invisible? Something? No, you see the work of the Spirit in those miracles. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you witness the the tongues, you hear the, the different languages, and you, you see these these signs and wonders. You see people doing things that prior to that moment they were not able to do. Right. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. So I, I just I just wanted to point that out because the Bible is consistent in its teaching. Well, so the question then would come of, well, well, why do they need to come to Samaria to impart these gifts to, to people there? Um, and I'll give just what I think may be, be an, ex, an, an explanation. Um, as far as we know, Philip is the only one in town that's got the ability to do any of these miraculous signs. Um, and so the apostles come down to impart that gift to others. And I, I tend to think that maybe part of the reason for that is because the Lord's got plans for Philip elsewhere. Yeah, Philip's there for right now. Uh, but actually, actually at this point, by the time the apostles come down, Peter and John, uh, there's no mention that actually Philip is even around anymore. Um, he's kind of he's kind of shifted away. We're gonna we're gonna be reintroduced to him here in verse uh, twenty six through the rest of the chapter, uh, and that's God's got work for him in some other places. And so maybe the reason you know the apostles come down to have uh, these these spiritual gifts be passed on to some some other believers there uh, is so that we've got somebody there, you know, someone or several someones uh, that are able to to do these things to again, to go along with the message that was continuing to be preached in that particular region. That's just one thought as to why they needed to come down and do that. Yeah, and I mean, another thing, who's going to be doing the teaching to them, you know? Yeah. How are they going to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge yeah. of the Lord? Uh, one of the spiritual gifts was was knowledge, right. and we had prophecy and that sort of thing. And so having people there that, that were able to, to pass knowledge on and, and to get knowledge directly from the Lord, that's a big deal Yeah, you know, to be able to, to share that. Right. Well, so you've, you've already indicated from verse 18, uh, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, here's where Simon makes his mistake, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Now, It's interesting to, to think about the possibilities 
you know, what, what if the apostles maybe were intending to maybe lay their hands on Simon? Mm. You know, because I mean, we're not really given any explanation as to who they chose or why they chose certain people to impart those gifts to. Uh, who knows, maybe Simon was going to be on the list to, to receive those gifts. Um, however, uh, Simon really, if that was the case, he, he really just burns himself here uh, because this this attempt to, to kind of purchase, bribe, if you will, uh, and have the, the gifts with money. And, and really that just is, is just the, the outward indication of what was really the problem inwardly. And that is there's, there's kind of this greed and covetousness and just wrong motives in his heart. Uh, here he's seeing dollar signs, you know, yeah. once again. He's seeing the opportunity to, okay, you know, I razzled and dazzled people before with the fake stuff. Wow, imagine what I could do now with the real thing. Um, and, 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 and actually, let me just take back what all I just said a second ago about maybe the apostles were thinking about giving it to him. Um, if they had supernatural gifts of, of knowledge, you know, as we talked about in the previous chapter with Ananias and Sapphira and was able to kind of yeah. know what was going on in a person's heart, then they probably knew, yeah, this guy, he doesn't need this. You're right. right. You, you know, this is actually just going to be an opportunity for him. It, it's going to be too much of a temptation for him to abuse and to misuse, and so this is not something that this guy needs to be having. Well, and I think, too, this was a little bit more than just receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, but he was wanting the ability to pass it on to others as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, so he, he wanted to be on par with the apostles. Right. Um, which, I mean, you think about that, that could be monetized too because, you know, if you give me enough money, I'll give you this power. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's, that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, so he was, he was even wanting more than the apostles were giving anybody. Yeah. And the truth is, I mean, even, <laughs> even if he was wanting to monetize it, like, I'm going I'm to sell this power to others, all right. Yeah. That probably needs to be tempered with reality. God's not going to let His Spirit just yeah. be be on anybody. You know, <laughs> if 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 His Spirit recognizes, if the Spirit of God recognizes that there's some person that does not need to have the powers that He could bestow, then He's not going to allow those things to be to be given to that person. Um, and that's especially the case here with Simon. He's not going to get them. What He's going to get is a stern rebuke. So, verse twenty, uh, and Peter. This is kind of classic Peter here, where he just calls it like he sees it and says what needs to be said without pulling any punches. Verse 20, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. I don't know about your Bible. Mine's got an exclamation point at the end of that. Too. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. This is just uh, powerful language, even if you stripped out the exclamation points, even if you say this stuff in like the most you know, monotone voice. This is harsh stuff, but it's direct. You know, When he talks there about you're in the gall of bitterness, you're in the bond of it, it's the idea of you're back enslaved and chained in sin once again. You know, you, you were believed and you were baptized in order to be set free from that, and you've just put yourself right back in the handcuffs again. You're letting the devil have his way with you is what uh, Peter's indicating here. Um, may your silver perish with you. I mean, sheesh, that's just uh, tough. But that's that, that would be the reality. If Simon just continued on as he would, 
then, then that is what's going to happen with him. He's just going to perish right along with his money and all of his uh, stuff and whatever other things that he's got on his mind. Um, your heart's not right. And, and that's the real issue here. It's not even so much about the money. It's about the, the motive for offering the money. Uh, your heart's not in the right place. And um, the only cure for it here is, is what's said in verse 22, and that is you need to repent. You need to you need to change your heart. You need to change how you're thinking and how you're uh, approaching things. And then I, I I like the way that Peter words this when he says, "Pray to the Lord that if possible, you might be forgiven." You know, Peter doesn't even just flat out say, uh, you know, that, that that forgiveness is just this automatic thing. Uh, he, he basically just is making it clear that forgiveness is in the realm of God. You know, I don't have the one to go or have the power to go around and tell you you're going to be forgiven uh, based on doing this, this, and this. Uh, God's the one who's going to make that determination. Um, but I'm confident you need to repent, brother, and that's what needs to take place. He didn't tell him you need to be baptized again so that you can be a real Christian now. No, you need to you need to repent. Yeah, and that's, you know, the heart issue is the concern here. Because is it possible to say the right things and, re and repent? And I'm air quoting, you can't see this, but <laughs> I'm air quoting uh, with repenting. You know, not just saying I'm sorry, yeah. but it's you have to change. Yeah. And and still still then, it, it's up to God. Your heart has to be right with Him. Yeah. You know, I, I like thinking, how, what do we do in response to our own sin? And how do we respond to that? Well, look at, at what people in the Bible were told to do. Um, you know, where are we originally? If if you've never become a Christian, you're given a different answer of what you need to do than for those who have already been baptized into Christ. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, some people will even tell you, well, the way you become a Christian is you pray and ask God into your heart. Well, that's, that's not what we've seen so far. The only person who we have seen in the entire book of what we've read up to this point that's been told to pray to to have your sins forgiven is is this guy, yeah. Simon. Yeah. And he already was baptized. Right. He had already entered that relationship with the Lord. And so we have to be careful in in understanding what we need to do in response to our own sin. Yeah. Growing up this was often referred to this is this is not a biblical term per se, but the concept is there. This is God's second law of pardon. You know, his first law of pardon is that we uh, you know, obey His plan of salvation, which is another you know <laughs> term that that's not a Bible term, but it's it's a Bible concept. Yeah. Um, that, that you know when, when when we respond to the Lord in baptism, uh, our sins are forgiven. Uh, but if along the way we we fall, and we're going to. Um, that's not doesn't mean that sin is just inevitable, but it's just it, it, it's reality that that is going to more than likely happen. Um, that this is God's second opportunity for us, and for for most of us, it's way more than a second law part. It's a you know, third, fourth, fifth, thousandth. You know, the truth is, we're more than likely we're probably repenting daily uh, yeah. of of things that we fall short in. Sometimes it's it's outward sins of, of commission like this. Sometimes it's just sins of omission where we just fail to do the things that we know that we ought to do. Uh, but the cure is, is repentance. I think about what the Lord said to, to one of the churches in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 when he's writing the letters to those churches, and I forget which one specifically, but he talks about that you need to go back and you need to remember and you need to repent. 
and, uh, and, and that's the antidote for, uh, for God's people to, to be brought back into a relationship with Him. And again, I think that's, that's probably a daily thing that we're, that we're doing if we're, if we're continuing to examine ourselves in, in, in light of Scriptures and in light of, of, of Christ. Um, I probably want to temper what I said a second ago about you know, Peter's words being, being harsh here. Um, Peter's not saying these things because he's wanting this brother to just be destroyed. Mm. True. He, he's saying these things to kind of, to shake him and to to, to get him to to, to repent, um, and sometimes that's the approach that's needed. Uh, I'd like to think that Peter knew that that's that that was the right thing for Simon to hear. That maybe kind of the you know soft and gentle approach, which maybe that is what's needed with some people, but for Simon, no, what he needed was kind of some tough love here, yeah. and he needed to be kind of blunt and be bold with the words that were said. To you know, I mean, I want to say scare him into repenting, but to put some fear in his heart, to, to help him realize the gravity of the situation. Your soul's in danger. Yeah. Now, another thing here, you, you don't really see, you don't know how many people were around, who else heard yeah. Simon make that offer. Uh, and so maybe we need to have an example you know, yeah. made out of him. Yeah. Um, maybe this isn't just for Simon's benefit, although it was because I think we're going to see that, but right. maybe for, for the other people around too to see, well, how do we deal with sin um, after you become a Christian? Yeah. You know, do we, do we tolerate this? Is this something that, is this how the whole gospel thing works? Uh, is it about money? Yeah, uh, you know, so. you're right, and 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 I've and when I've always pictured this, I guess I have just in my mind, just by default, I've pictured this as being a public thing. Yeah. It may not have been. I mean, for all we know, it it, it it maybe wasn't. Maybe it was done in a private room, uh, and each situation is gonna gonna call for how that needs to be done. You know, when when Paul comes and confronts Peter to the face in Galatians two, Galatians three, talks about. I, I take that 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 was a that was a private yeah, uh, altercation. Um, but, but here, uh, yeah, at least from reading the, the verses prior to it, I, I kind of picture them. Maybe there were some other people around, and and kind of an example did need to be made. And the Lord's done that already uh, in Acts. What was done with Ananias and Sapphira seemed to have been a very public kind of thing to okay. set an example for the rest of the church very early on. And this maybe was a way to to help you know what's going to be the the church in Samaria. You know, kind of set an example for them in their infancy. Yeah. They hadn't seen that exactly. <laughs> they, yeah, they weren't there. So. Exactly. They needed. Yeah. Let's understand that that sin is is not going to just be. We're just going to tolerate that, and we're just going to we're just going to deal with that. And hey, that that's okay. And hey, the grace of God will take care of all of that, and it's no big deal. No, we need to repent when that's in our midst. Um, verse twenty four. The indication here is that Simon wants to do that. He says, "Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said." May come upon me. Um, this is uh, this is often cited to to teach, and, and I'm not sure how I feel about this. But this passage is often cited to teach that if if I sin in some way, and if I want forgiveness for that, that I need to ask someone else to pray for me. Mm. Um, and that happens. You know, and, and as an expedient, we offer that. You know, in, in pretty much all of our assemblies of the church, where if if you need the prayers of God's people, if you've sinned in some way, and you need to come back to the Lord, we we'd be glad to pray for you. Yeah. And and there's power in that. There's no doubt about that. Uh, James five verse sixteen, a classic verse that comes to mind about you know praying for one another, and and particularly as it pertains to sin. Um, 
But I guess I'd be reluctant to just limit that and to say that the only way we can receive forgiveness for our sins, uh, especially if it's a public sin, is that I have to have some other brother pray for me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that actually would would you know run into some other passages. First John chapter one uh, that talks about you know confessing those things to the Lord. There's nothing in there about you have to ask somebody else to do that for you. In fact, there's there's even some danger in that. It kind of uh, lends itself to the uh, you know what's common in in Roman Catholicism and some other uh, religions where you know if I want to be absolved of my sins, I need to go to the to the priest or or, or whoever is in some kind of position of authority in the church, and they need to be the ones to go to God on on my behalf. Uh, I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. I think if anything, this passage is teaching that that there is power in having a brother uh, or even a, a sister to pray with uh, and 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 help me. You know sometimes in our moments of, of, of weakness, we struggle to even know what to say to God. And having, a, having a, a fellow Christian to be able to be there and to, to put those words uh, before the Lord, that, that can be very beneficial. And I think that's what Simon's begging for here. Yeah, I think so. And you know, you, you even see what Peter himself said. You know, the words of Peter was, you need to pray. Yeah. He doesn't say, you need to ask me to pray for you. Yeah. You know, it, it's, no, it, it's personal thing. You do this. Yes. Now, Simon, I don't think he was wrong in asking no. you know, Peter to pray no. for him. No, And I, I think that there's a lot here of, uh, you know, him, he, he knows that Peter is, you know, a good, strong member of the Lord's body. Yeah, and so, way more mature than Simon would have been in his Christian walk. Yeah, exactly. And so, is it wrong to ask people to pray for us? No. But is it necessary in order to receive forgiveness to go through somebody else other than Jesus? That's making someone else our go-between. Right. You know, we, nobody else is our intercessor other than Jesus. That's right. And That's so right. We get salvation through Him. And so I, I think that, that we need to see that as being, you know, it, it's, it's up to us. We have to change our heart and, and pray. That's right. Um and so I'd like to, and that's, that's where the Simon story ends. I don't have any other mention of him in the rest of the book of, of Acts or anywhere else in the Bible. I'd, I'd like to think, you know, that they, they prayed in that moment. He received forgiveness. He got back up on the horse and, and did better. Uh, you know, yeah. whether this particular sin and temptation maybe crept back in to, uh, up to the surface at some point later on, it's very probable. Um, yeah. If this was his pet sin, uh, it's very possible. But, um, I'd like to think that Simon turned out okay. I'll be I'll be eager to get to heaven someday and meet Simon. You know, yeah. Simon, not the sorcerer uh, anymore. <laughs> yes, um, he will have to differentiate himself. There's a lot of Simons in the Bible, and I need to know which one I'm talking to. There, are, I mean, even Peter was yeah, a Simon. Was a Simon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, verse 25. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. I think that's Peter and John preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so that, that kind of wraps up this particular section about the work that had began in, in Samaria. Um, and there'll be other mentions of Samaria um, later on uh, in Acts and, and throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, but that's the kind of the lengthiest episode that we get of the work that took place there. And it all started with just, just some regular Christians. We had Philip go down there and do some pointed work. We have the apostles doing some work. And then even those people then that become converted, I imagine they then just jumped right in there and started getting to work as well. Uh, and we're seeing kind of the growth of, of the kingdom. Um, we then get kind of a, a shift to this, this final episode in Acts chapter 8. But it's 
we're going to rejoin Philip. All right, well, what happened to Philip? Because, again, Peter and John came to town, and Philip then just kind of disappears from the story. And maybe I'll just make kind of a quick side point here that it would have been real easy for, for Philip to kind of get perturbed, I guess, hmm. by, you know, the, the quote-unquote the big dogs coming in. You know, it would have been real easy for him to, you know, kind of get territorial. Like, well, who, who are these guys? You know, I've been down here, you know, busting my hump and, and doing all this work, and then these guys gonna going to come in and kind of take over. Uh, there's no indication of that. Luke doesn't say anything about anything like that. Um, instead, what we're going to see here in this next episode is Philip just, I mean, he's just going to be put to work in other places. Uh, God's got other, other plans for him. So let's just pick that up, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. That's just the extra note that Luke gives us that to let us know the complete different scenery here. Uh, in, in desert, it, it may indicate like you know an actual physical desert, but it may just indicate more so just kind of a deserted place. Just yeah. not really much much going on there. Um, but there's going to be something going on there. Now that's that's interesting. Philip had just just been preaching in this place, and a huge amount of people. Don't know how many people, but a lot of people obeyed. Yeah. And then the Lord turns right around and says, "Go to this deserted place where yeah. there's nobody around." Yeah. It's like, what? Why right. would I do that? Such a such a a, 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 a contrast here. But uh, Philip's the the kind of servant that I would expect nothing else from. Right? If that's what the Lord says to do, that's what we're going to do. So yeah. verse twenty-seven, and he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Let's just stop right there and appreciate some things about this, uh, this Ethiopian man. I heard a, a, a youngerish preacher one time preach from Acts chapter 8, and he referred to this guy as the Ethiopian unch. <laughs> and he then, he then said that for like the duration of the sermon. And it was hard to keep a straight face the whole time. Uh, he's not an unch. He's a eunuch. Uh, and for the benefit of those who don't know, just let's, let's just maybe kind of be more technical and clinical about it. It just means a castrated male. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, specifically, those would have been uh, males would have been castrated for for purposes of serving, like in this case, like like in a royal court, um, so that you know he, maybe for one reason would have been he would have been tending to you know to uh, to women to to you know, the princess or to you know the harem of the king, and if he's castrated, then all right, whatever physical desires he would have had for those women, okay, that's not a problem now. We can we can trust this guy uh, in those circumstances. This guy may have been a eunuch for a completely different reason. I don't know. Um, we read about uh, you know people who are eunuchs for the gospel's sake uh, in in another place. Um, let's, I'm going to call him the Ethiopian man, though. Uh, that's yeah. the word I'm going to use for for the that's remainder fair. of our our time together. Um, but this is a man. He's a. He's. All right, it says that he was in charge of, of the queen's treasure uh, back in uh, back in Egypt. So here's a man of, of some position, of some some level of of authority himself. But probably most wonderful about this man is this is a spiritually minded man, because it says that he had he had drove all the way 
from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in order to worship. And I don't have the exact numbers and measurements you know, noted here, but this would have not been just a, you know, an afternoon trip. He's, he's went a long distance to go and to worship God in Jerusalem. Now, I, I don't know what specific, if there was a specific day. Maybe he had been there for Pentecost and he's just now heading back home himself. Uh, probably not that one, but uh, he had went to Jerusalem to worship according to the Jewish system of religion as best as, as he understood. And on his ride home, on top of that, he's reading his Bible. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. Probably not a leather-bound copy of the Bible like we've got. Probably a piece of scroll, uh, some section of Isaiah. But this is, uh, this is a, re a religiously-minded, spiritually-minded man. And this is, I mean, this is the kind of prospects that we're looking for all the time. Yeah. If I walk into McDonald's and I see a guy sitting there reading his Bible, I'm probably at some point going to strike up a conversation with that guy. You know, if if nothing else, hey, what are you reading? You know, when we and, and I want to have the kind of awareness uh, to kind of have a mind that's open to where I'm just looking for those kinds of opportunities. Um, and this is, I mean, this is low hanging fruit, really. You know, when you got somebody that they've traveled back from Jerusalem and they're sitting in the chariot reading their Bible, I mean, come on. You can't just pass that up. Um, and that's, Philip's going to capitalize on the moment, and that's uh, the reason God put him out there in the middle of the desert. Um, what do you want to say about the, about the Ethiopian man? A lot, but I'll try to keep my comments brief. Um, so you, we don't know if, if he was a, a Jew who had moved to Ethiopia right. and rose up in, in ranks. You know, there's a few examples of some people in the Old Testament that did that, like Joseph yeah. or... Uh, I don't know, Esther. Esther, Daniel, yeah. even. I mean, so there, there are several who did that. So maybe that's the case. Maybe he is an uh, Ethiopian-born man who was a proselyte mm -hmm. and became a Jew at some point. Either way, you think his dedication must have been kind of amazing mm -hmm. to go, like you said, all the way to Jerusalem. It's, uh, by the way, if you're traveling at 50 kilometers per hour, it takes about 83 hours to get there. Okay. Um, Thank you. So, I didn't just have saying, that. He's probably not moving that fast, uh, so it's maybe a couple weeks. Um, but anyways, it, he had, had spent a long time getting there. But you think, too, about what it was like to be a eunuch, one, um, but potentially a foreigner as well, coming in to worship you were not allowed into like the inner courts of the temple. And so uh, you, you got up to a certain point and weren't even able to participate fully in, in the worship that, that's happening there. Right. Which, you know, to travel that far of a distance, to not even be able to get in and, and worship just like everybody else is, that says a lot about his dedication. Yeah, he's willing to go anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that's amazing. Um, but I think that he is just a man who is, it, it's impressive in a lot of ways, because we're going to see him reading Scripture. Uh, he is, is dedicated to learning more. He is definitely a prospect for the gospel. Yeah. Well, in verse 29 it says that the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Um, you know, I, I don't know if, if Philip was able to see the guy uh, or, or, or what caused the, the Spirit to have to prompt him to do it. I, I tend to believe that if Philip had been close enough to this, like if he had been as close as I am to you and he saw a guy reading his Bible, I don't need the Spirit to tell me to go over there. I'm going over there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's the way, that's, that's, again, that's kind of the, the, the MO that we ought to have as well. I mean, if I see somebody 
If I see people talking about spiritual things, or if I see somebody carrying a Bible or sitting down reading the Bible, that that demonstrates spiritual interest, and so I want to I want I want to jump on that. You know, again, that's that's low hanging fruit for us as Christians when we're thinking about our evangelistic efforts. Um, verse thirty. So Philip ran to him. So maybe that's an indication that that there was he was quite a bit away from him. Yeah. Uh, he ran to him, and I love that too. I mean, I'm not going to like delay around. Yeah. There's no like, well, hold on, Lord, you need to give me the 411 about this guy, or are you sure this is a good idea? His skin is maybe a little bit different color than mine is, and yeah. I'm not sure how this guy feels about me. Uh, there's none of that. He's running to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, do you understand what you are reading? I love that question. Mm. That's a great thing to just to lead with. Um what Philip is doing there is he's he's assessing well, where where is this guy? Where is he in his understanding? Does I mean, if he knows what Isaiah is and what's going on there, then all right. That lets me know well, I can I can just start there. If he doesn't understand, then okay, I got to back up a few steps and let's let's help understand what Isaiah uh is talking about. Um that's just a really important key for us in our evangelistic efforts. I don't, I don't want to start talking to somebody about, you know, the baptism if they don't even believe that God exists. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to argue with somebody about instrumental music in worship if they're not even sure that Jesus rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm wasting my time if I do that. I want to meet people where they are, and Philip is, is setting that example here very early on. Yeah, and, and I mean... There, there's a lot of good things going on for this guy, for sure. He's, I don't know if you've ever tried to read in a car while you're driving somewhere. There's a lot of people who don't like that, doing that sort of thing, because um, it's a little sickening. But this guy has a scroll. You know, that's he didn't have it in book form. It, it was a scroll of Isaiah, which was pretty, pretty lengthy. Yeah. Um, and bouncing around on a chariot, reading it. You know, th- this guy's dedicated, and so. Um, it's it's obvious that he wants to learn and, and wants to know, um, but again, Philip didn't just automatically assume. Well, this guy is reading it, so he must know. Yeah. No, we we got to ask questions. Right. Uh, just because somebody is reading a passage that that is is very applicable, as as we're going to see, this passage is is kind of amazing. It, I, I don't think it was quite a coincidence, you know, the logistics here of of where this guy was reading when, by the time Philip got up to him. At some point, I want to say something about the providence of God because it's all over this chapter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's infused everywhere. Um, but I think that that's, that's a big deal um, to be able to to just start start at the basics, start start where they are, like yeah. you were saying. Yeah. Well, so he asked, and, and, and here's just another good kind of evangelism tip, you know, ask questions. You know, I don't instead of just doing all the telling, how about we ask kind of some leading questions and let's just listen. And so he asks the question, verse 31, the man responds, well, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he, this is another thing to the, to the Ethiopian man's credit, he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. You know, I, it kind of makes me wonder, I mean, was there... Was was there any introduction here? You know, hi, my name is Philip. You, you know, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I've yeah. got daughters and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, just maybe it was just just to invite this strange guy up here, and you know, he asked a question, and hey, you seem to have some knowledge of 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 this that you've asked me about, and so hey, come up here and, and help me out a little bit. Um, 
Verse 32, now the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And of course, we know that as uh, a section from uh, Isaiah the 53rd chapter, one of the, I mean, maybe the pinnacle uh, messianic prophecy, or at least, at least yeah. probably the most well-known. Uh, just a powerful chapter, um, and, and this particular uh, section here, uh, I can understand why if someone's never heard about, about Jesus before, why there would be some confusion. And, and I kind of need some, some blanks filled in uh, and some explanation about all of this. You know, well, well who's, this, who's this sheep? Who's this, who's this lamb? Who is this one who doesn't open his mouth even in the face of, of, of slaughter and death? Who's this one who, you know, is, is humiliated and his life is taken away from him? I, I, I want to know more about this person. Um, and especially if you read all of Isaiah 53 altogether, you know, there's so much of that language that's used about that, that he did that for us. You know, for for our iniquities, um, and 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 there's those kinds of pronouns being used. And so, when you're reading Isaiah 53, there's this feeling of, well, yeah, there, there's there's this guy who did this stuff for me. You know, he he did these things, went through this pain and suffered for me. Who who is this one? And I think that's that, that probably seems to be that, that what well, we're going to see in just a second. That is the question that the man has: is who is this talking about? Yeah. Which I think that is an amazing question. Uh, it's very perceptive of the eunuch to ask that, or sorry, the Ethiopian to ask that question. Um, just because the book of Isaiah in general is, is kind of hard sometimes to know, well, who's he talking about? Is this God yeah. speaking? Is this Isaiah? Right. Is, is, is this somebody else? Uh, and so that's, that's a very well thought out question, actually. You know? and, and when you see that, when people, you know, one of our evangelistic tools, asking questions, but also listening to questions that people ask, mm-hmm. because it, it reveals a little bit behind what they're thinking. You know, some people, sometimes, I, I will say, as a high school teacher, there are dumb questions. Uh, you know, sometimes if if someone would have came to this passage and been like, "Well, what's the color of his hair?" It's like, what does that even have to do with anything? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. But this was a good question. He genuine. Was, he was thinking about it. Yeah. And so that that's you you as a teacher, you love that. You love to see this and yeah. hear it. I think there, it's probably safer to say this guy probably is a is a pretty good Bible student from. From what he's been able to gather, from what he's been able to uh, to read, he's just he's just needing that last dot connected for him, and that's what Philip's going to do for him. So, verse thirty four, he asks uh, Philip the question: About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? So again, there's and and it that's. That's logical. Like you said a second ago, if you are reading in, in Isaiah sometimes, or in Jeremiah and some of those other prophets, it's sometimes kind of hard to, even us with all the gift of hindsight, it's even hard for us to piece together, well, who's, who's talking there? And who are they saying that about? And who's the they in this? And who's the I in this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he just he, he, wants, he wants the answers about that. Great question. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture. So I love that. There's that idea again. I'm going to start where this guy is. He told him the good news about Jesus. Um, we saw Philip doing that in the beginning of the chapter. He comes to Samaria. I'm just preaching Jesus. Encounters this guy in a one-on-one setting. 
going to preach to him Jesus. And I'm going to start right here where he's at because, hey, Jesus is right there in that text. Uh, no need for me to run over here. Well, well, let me tell you some things over here in Deuteronomy. Or, you know, let me draw your attention over here to Habakkuk somewhere. Nope, I'm just going to start where that guy's at, where he's got some, there's clearly some spiritual interest, um, and let's capitalize on this moment and just work from there. And... Um, yeah, we're going to see here in just a second that, that that then leads to this man wanting to make a response. It does. And I think that this is an amazing scripture that he's at. And and like you said, there's some providence there. Uh, it's, it's not a hard leap to go from suffering servant to... And I, I don't know... It, I don't know what he said. There's no idea what Philip actually said. Right. And uh, what he used, did he use other passages? Did he keep going through Isaiah? You know, what did... I don't know. But this passage, it's not a far leap to see, okay, we, there's this suffering servant who dies, uh, who, you know, for, our, for us, you know, why does he have to die? What's mm -hmm. the point of that? Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to see the connection of how that can get to Jesus. But... I think if, if we're a, a strong Bible student, we're going to be looking for Jesus anywhere when we're yes. reading Scripture. Yes. Um, and that, that's one thing, you know, maybe you're, you're intimidated of not knowing where to start with somebody or what to do with them. That, that just, it comes with looking at the Bible, thinking about what do I need to see about Jesus in this? You mm -hmm. know, can we see that in the Old Testament? Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> And so, uh, on like the first page. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, Let us make man in, a, so. in our image. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. Genesis three, the first prophecy of Jesus, and yeah, he is. He's everywhere. I heard somebody once, you know, describe uh, the Old Testament as you know, all right, it's it's history, but break that word apart. His story. Mm. You know, it's it's okay. it's it's the story of. Uh, of the Lord, um, yeah, and we get some some history, but but yeah, he is he's on he's on every page. Um, it's the story of the Bible. Um, I would I would I would be I'm like you. I would be interested to know you know all the specifics of of what all Philip preached, every word that was included in that particular uh, sermon that afternoon. Uh, having said that, though, um, I, I'd like to think that he kept it pretty simple. You know, when we talk about preaching Jesus, we're not talking about something that, that needs to be complicated and we need big giant org charts drawn out and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I think it was simple. And the other thing that we know about preaching Jesus, because of the next verse, is that part of that was preaching baptism. Um, and, and I think that's a necessary thing to infer from this because of what's said next. So verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, well, how does this guy know that he needs to be baptized? Where would he get that from? Um, I've read the Old Testament. And yeah, there's some things in the Old Testament about you know, like the priests purifying themselves with water and, and, and some of that, but even that's not really baptism. Uh, right. You don't, don't really even see that concept. So even if this guy knew his Old Testament front to back, where would he have got that from? Right. Obviously, I, he would have got that from Philip. Somewhere along the way, when Philip was preaching Jesus, maybe Philip you know, talked about Jesus being baptized. Maybe you talked about uh, you know how John was baptizing people and Jesus came along and you know as John had prepared the way and then Jesus then began to use that as as part of his ministry where at the end you know in the Great Commission he preaches 
you know, going to all the world and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, don't know all the specifics of, of what he said, but I'm, I'm confident in saying preaching Jesus involves preaching baptism. Yeah. And, I mean, sometimes people are able to, uh, and th this is just you know, one thing when we're teaching people, um, for this guy to make that uh, assumption about himself, that he needed that, mm -hmm. Um, you know, Philip must have indicated the importance of it. Doesn't seem like Philip is the one pushing him. He right. didn't. He, he wasn't the one, as far as we know, that said, "Hey, as soon as we see water, you need this." Right. Um, because the way that the eunuch asked the question, yeah, you know, he asked. It was, yeah, can I? Yeah, it's like you know, here's, here's what is there anything that's stopping me? Yeah, you know, he's just eager. Um, and that attitude of eagerness is, is great, um, but again, it was it was from what Philip had preached. Somewhere in there, there had to be some mention of baptism. Yeah, um, and and how how necessary it was for for him to have the uh, the the comparison that I often make in my mind with with the Ethiopian man is to is a lot of times to, to children. Yeah, children, you know, when they reach kind of a certain age and they've they've learned to process some stuff, they a lot of times kind of approach baptism the same way that the, that the Ethiopian man did. Like, you know, can I? You know, is there any reason why I can't? You know, what's what's stopping me? Um, and and there, there's an innocence about that. And I, I sense there's a, there's a, there's a purity and an innocence in in the way that the the Ethiopian. And I'm not saying he was he was pure from sin or, or innocent. That's not what I'm trying to imply. But just there's a there's a real genuineness of like I just I just want to please God. You know, it seemed like that baptism thing was was important, and and I want to do that. Um, Verse thirty-seven is actually it's actually omitted from 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 the ESV because there's a textual variant there. Uh, but after asking that question, uh, and, and I'm I'm totally fine with including that verse because I think it it, it it's it would have to be uh, or there would have to be the things said that are said um, in verse thirty-seven. After asking, you know, what what hinders me from being baptized, Philip then said to him, "If you believe with all your heart." Uh, it is lawful. This is from the a modern King James Version. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We know from passages like Matthew 10, 32, Romans 10, 9, and 10, that that confession is an important part of, of God's plan for, for salvation um, and that we, we need to make that confession publicly. Uh, and so whether the ESV chooses to include that verse or not, I don't know if, if other trans, I don't know how many other translations choose to you know set it off in, in brackets or italics or whatever to, to just note that there's a textual variant there. Um, I'm confident though, he would have had to have made this confession. Yeah, yeah. But because that's, that's again, it's a prerequisite for anybody in order to become a Christian. Agreed, yeah. And, and I think in a lot of ways, the way that Luke writes, we've already seen several times, it's, it's sort of succinct. It's, we don't get a whole lot of extraneous details. Uh, and, and even here in what, you know, what he preached exactly, we don't have all those words. Um, you know, there's a lot that we can infer, and there's a yeah. lot that we see. And so, yeah, those, those words there, you know, it's all right. I, I think that he would have had to, to have some kind of dialogue there. Because yeah. it, it wasn't just, <laughs> Philip wouldn't have just <laughs> not went, not said a word and just you know, had out his hand and point. <laughs> right. You know, right. Uh, there, there was some kind of conversation there. Yeah. Apparently. It's just like with other, you know, um, th like there's no mention here about repentance. There's nothing in the right. text specifically that says, and the Ethiopian man repented and was then baptized. It, it, yeah. it's, it's implied 
Uh, I, I don't think Philip would have baptized him if he did not, you know, demonstrate that that he was wanting to to repent and to make that make that change. I'm not going to baptize somebody that, you know, demonstrates well, I don't have any I don't have any desire to repent, but yeah. I want to be baptized. Right. Oh, sorry, buddy. I'm not I'm not going to baptize you. True. Um, and so yeah, Luke's he's just kind of hitting the hitting the highlights here. Um, so the results of that, uh, upon hearing that confession, verse thirty-eight. He commanded the chariot to stop, and that probably is a is an indication to us that it wasn't just the Ethiopian man riding in the chariot. Uh, I tend to believe he was giving instructions to the guy who would have been commandeering the chariot, mm-hmm. one maybe more than one. Um, so then, kind of makes me wonder about you know what kind of an effect did did this this Bible class that was happening in this in this chariot what kind of an effect did it have on whatever other parties were, were present or maybe just on the the rest of the ride home did the Ethiopian man you know oh, hey mr. chariot driver let me talk to you about about this Jesus mm. yeah. um, but he commands the chariot to stop and it says that they both went down into the water Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him um, this is just another place worth just kind of highlighting in our Bible when we talk about what's the definition of baptism, that it involves an immersion. Uh, when it says Philip and the eunuch, they, they, they went down into the water. He didn't just, you know, sprinkle some water at him. Somebody shared a meme on my page the other day of, of somebody holding a water squirter, just <laughs> shooting someone, social distancing baptism, yeah, just yeah. squirting them with it. Uh, that's not baptism. That's just not what the word means. Uh, the word would mean a full full immersion, uh, as it talks about here, that they, they went down into the water, and then verse 39, then they came up out of the water. Um, that's, that, that's that burial idea. As we were doing what Jesus did. We were, just as Jesus was buried in the tomb and then rose uh, on the third day, that's what we're doing. That's what we're reenacting. We're, we're dying to sin, we're buried, and then we rise to walk in, in newness of life, as Romans 6 talks about. Verse 39 continues, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Then verse 40, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And that's really the last the last main mention that we have of Philip. There is that note later on in Acts about Philip has daughters who are who are prophesying. Uh, but that kind of ends the, the Philip section. Um, I, I, what I wanted to point out about verse 39 mm-hmm. is that um, there's the rejoicing that takes place. But but notice where where that happens in the in the progression of things. There are a lot of people today who 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 would like to kind of rearrange the order of things, and they want to say that I know that I'm saved because of what I feel, because of this experience that I had, these emotions that I had, these these feelings that I have, and that's how I know that I'm saved. Are there feelings in conversion? Yes, there are, but. I'm impressed with the order of things that happen here in this particular story. I think Acts 8 is a great illustration of this. It starts with learning the facts. This guy had, had to learn the facts. Once he learned the facts, he then had faith that was based on those facts. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. The result of that, of then acting upon that faith, was in the end, yes, there was some feelings. But the order, I'm going to say again, was facts, then faith, 
then the feelings come. Mm-hmm. And when we try to, to get that out of order, where, where I've got to have the feelings first, and that's, that, that's somehow the evidence of my salvation, um, we're setting ourselves up for, for failure. Because, uh, number one, feelings come and go. Yeah. Uh, feelings fluctuate. Um, and, 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 and it's sometimes hard to sustain certain kinds of feelings. And when I can't, if I'm not getting the feelings that I want, well, then I've got to go somewhere to you know, get those feelings pumped back up again. Um, that's not how that works. When we act upon the facts of the gospel in an obedient faith, then naturally the feelings are going to come. And it's not something that has to be, um, you know, has to be turned on. It's not something that I've got to be fed some stuff in order to get those feelings. No, it's a natural response uh, to the gospel. Yeah, and you, you think of how people respond to the gospel. I mean, you have people, so the Ethiopian here, he comes face to face with Jesus through the teaching. And he, he leaves rejoicing. You think of some other examples where people leave contact with Jesus and they go and, and they're sad, they're upset. Mm-hmm. You know, think about like the rich young ruler. Uh, what was the difference between the rich young ruler and, and this guy? Because the rich young ruler had done some good things and, and he had some good knowledge even. But this guy, um, the Ethiopian, he actually did what was required of him. Yes. He, he obviously gave himself to the Lord. He went through this. And because of that, he can go on his way rejoicing. I, I think that, that that's important for us too. Yes. Um, just when we come to Jesus, if we don't listen and obey, we have no reason to rejoice. Right. It'll just be false and fake feelings and emotions, even if we have them. Yeah. Amen. Um, well, um, that's 40 verses, and um, probably here in just a moment by the time we were... And if you're listening all the way up to this point, congratulations to you, because th- this is probably going to end up being our, our, our world record episode as far as length yeah. goes. Um, but there's just so much here, and we've probably even really not even scratched the surface of everything that could be said about this. Um, parting thoughts, just maybe about just evangelism as a whole or, or main takeaways from, from this chapter for you. Well, I just think um, no matter if there is a large crowd or if it's just one person, that they're important. You know, we have to look for opportunities around us, mm-hmm. and, and we have to not prejudge certain people. You know, uh, I mean, both instances of who Philip is talking to here—the Samaritans, not not a likely group. Right. Uh, this guy from Ethiopia, who is a high-ranking official. Not a likely person to go to. Yeah. Uh, one, culture is completely different. Uh, maybe, like you said before, nationality, you know, skin tone even. Um, there were a lot of things that, that would have been roadblocks that uh, you know, maybe Philip could have said, I, I don't know if these are the people I need to go to. No, they need the Lord just as much as anyone else. We can't know how somebody is going to respond. Yeah. So just being able to, to see everyone as a prospect, meet them where they are, like you said, um, praying to God to help us to you know, find ourselves in, in situations where we can help out. Like you mentioned before, and it, uh, you might say something about this too, the providence of God. Yes, that was going to be my parting word. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, there's a lot there, and I'll let you expound on that a little bit. Well, there's, I mean, it's it's evident that, you know, the Lord's working in, in kind of a more direct way here in Acts chapter 8, because the Spirit 
tells Philip to go, you know, go to this man. It takes him out to the uh, to the desert and and all of that. Um, but that the point is that that was orchestrated by the Lord. The, the Lord is using kind of some natural circumstances to see to it that the right people were in the right place at the right time. And we need to realize that the Lord is really good at that. And we need to be more sensitive to that. You know, we, yeah. we, we need, and that's maybe one of the things I want to pray about more myself is that, Lord, help me to be more sensitive to your providence and to recognize um, when, 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 when you've allowed me to be in the right place or this other person has, 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 has come my way uh, and to then seize the opportunity. I mean, it would have been just absolutely foolish for Philip you know, to to find himself out there in the desert, and then to just walk in the other direction as soon as he saw uh, that chariot pass by. Um, th that was the Lord serving something up to him on a golden platter, and I wonder how many times the Lord has done that in my life. And I turned and looked at the other one, squirrel over here, and I go running in that <laughs> yeah. direction. Uh, or, or probably what is more often the case, um, I maybe make an excuse in my mind about. Yeah, this is going to be awkward. This is going to be strange. I don't know what to say. Uh, and I find some way to excuse myself. And what I've done is I've essentially just kind of spit on God's providence was trying to, to work some things uh, in order to bring someone to Christ. And uh, I just need to have eyes wide open and, um, and just be thinking about, again, the fact that at any time, you know, God is really, really good. And really what we're going to get here is we're actually going to get three consecutive chapters of God and His providence seeing to it that the right people are in the right place at the right time. And these are all examples of sincere people. This Ethiopian man, that's one of the things I want to say about this guy just as kind of a, on a whole, this guy is super sincere. Right. In Acts chapter 9, when we're going to read about Saul on the road to Damascus, he was doing the wrong thing. But he was very sincere in doing it. Mm -hmm. Then in Acts chapter 10, when we talk about Cornelius, I mean, that's Mr. Sincerity, a devout <laughs> yeah. man who feared God. And God, he sees sincere people. And I believe when God sees sincere people, he makes sure of it that those people have the opportunity to learn the truth. I just then want to make sure that I'm, that I'm ready and I'm on deck to be used in that way to help other sincere seekers come to the Lord. And uh, and Acts 8 is the first of those kind of three consecutive stories that really, really makes that point in a strong way. You never know what someone else has been through yeah. before you meet them. Right. And maybe they have been on a path that has led them directly to you, and now it's your turn to open your mouth. You know, you might think, man, I, I could there's no way I can make that happen. You're right. There is no way that you could. Right. But God can. He's yep. the master of logistics. Yeah. You know, to be able to, to have Philip start walking down a road and then happen to meet this, this passing chariot going however how fast and, you know, reading from this very specific place out of a 66-book, you, know, you know, thing of Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, that's just amazing. Yeah. Um, and for all of this to be put together. Um, we we need to take that seriously. And you know, something that I almost forgot to mention, um, any time that we see an angel of God or, or like the spirit being involved in someone's conversion, notice we don't have the angel or the spirit that tells that person what they need to do. Right. Um, they always, it's God who puts a person 
in that in someone else's way and and it's people who are responsible for sharing the gospel yes so if if we feel like an angel has revealed something to me or the spirit has told me that i'm saved that's not what we see we're, we're going to see that here in chapter eight yep. chapter nine and chapter 10, right. right? You know, that that connection of God's message takes place through the work of, of His people. Yep. Well, these are th- this is a powerful chapter just for all of us to think about our, our roles in the kingdom. And, um, you know, and there's a bunch of different roles that were just identified in, in this chapter. You know, whether you're just the, the average Joe or, or Jill Christian in, in verse 4, uh, who just, in whatever corner of the world I am, I'm going to do what I can to help share the good news. Maybe you are kind of the, the front-line person, the, the Philip or the, 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 the Peter or the John, you know, that's kind of taking a more proactive kind of approach where, you know, I'm, 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 like, I'm looking militantly for, for, for people to, uh, to share the good news with. Whatever it is, um, we all need to find that role and then be... Uh, be working. Uh, the Lord deserves that from us, uh, and it's not that we're we're doing that because we're we're earning our, you know, earning heaven in some way by doing more of that. No, it's just that that's just what we're to do as Christians. That's what we ought to do. We want to do it. Um, I've enjoyed talking about this chapter. Thank you again to, to if you're listening. If you listen to this point, you've put in ninety plus minutes worth of. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, of your ears to us, and we appreciate that a lot. Uh, Jason, I'll let you say just a final uh, farewell, and then I'm going to sign us off officially. All right, guys, this was great. I hope that uh, you got a lot from this. I I know we have in in discussing this, talking about it, Uh, but we're not done. We're we're just just barely getting into Acts. There's still a lot left. Uh, I think there's a lot that we need to see from the gospel. So, guys, let's just keep studying. Yep, and let's get out there and find ourselves an Ethiopian unch. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Till next time, Acts chapter 9 next week. Thanks.